I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. So today we have two special guests and they have an organization that they work with and they're going to tell us about called the Stereotype Project. We have with us Gian Franco Wilson and Liz Kim. Welcome, guys. Hi. How are y'all doing? Thank you for having us. Doing well. Yeah, we're glad to have you guys. And so I always start the interviews off with you telling us about yourself. And it doesn't have to be anything like, you know, your credentials, unless you want to, something heavy. It could be just something about yourself that goes beyond this work that you do. So who is Gian and who is Liz? Yeah, I, I, my name is Gian Franco. Um, very, very excited and thankful to be here. Um, outside of this work, I'm a filmmaker. I am wow. very, very passionate and engaged in media and um, through the pandemic, pandemic, I can't say um, during, because we started before we finished sort of halfway through, um, we released a film called Venus is a Boy, went to Tribeca Film Festival um, and wow. was successful to win one of the audience awards and uh, is now on Hulu, so you should check that out. Congratulations. Cool. Dang, we're awesome. in the midst of a celebrity filmmaker here no. doing big things big things popping congratulations that is phenomenal i'm going to go watch that as soon as i leave here so <laughs> thanks i'd love sharing. to hear your thoughts on it too I, I will i will follow up and jen you're trinidadian yes I am. okay so tell us about that yeah, I was born in Trinidad. I grew up in London. I left Trinidad when I was about a year old um, and moved back to Trinidad when I was about 14. So oh. what ended up happening is I got the accent and some very, very nostalgic memories, and that's about <laughs> it. And so I came back to Trinidad, and I, I lived here in Trinidad. Well, that's where I am now. Um, visiting, I lived here until I was 22, and then I came to the States. And I've lived in the States ever since. Came up for grad school and then um, so I've been knocking about the US. I think I've lived in all four quarters, Miami, wow. Seattle, New York, and now LA. Um, wow. That's awesome. In between. So, I've lived traveling. in three of those, but not the fourth. That's awesome. I'm which mi- which, I'm which one have you lived in? The Northeast. Ah, okay. okay. I lived in Bellingham, so near Seattle, LA, nice. and then Orlando. Cool. Nice. And then Liz. Yes. I am Korean. Um, I actually came to the States when I was 10. So actually started my kind of immigration life, right, in New York. Mm -hmm. And then moved to Texas in my middle school year, which was very traumatic. Because Uh, we we didn't move to, you know, we didn't move to big city. We moved to El Paso, Texas, which is a fairly small town. And they Mm -hmm. didn't see a lot of Asian people. So coming from New York, which was a very diverse town, to go to a really small town in Texas. During my teenage years, I think it was kind of traumatic. But I think it makes me who I am today. And I'm very appreciative of all the experiences that I've had. 
And then I lived in LA for a bit as well, and then moved to Chicago. And then we made my way back to New York is where I met Gian. Um, we try not to talk about when and how we met because I think it makes both of us sound just old. Um, but Jean, yeah, Jean, Jean was my intern is kind of how we met uh, when both of us oh, wow. were, yeah, when I was in kind of a finance uh, role and Jean was um, just graduating NYU with this MBA and we were in the you know tech space at IAC is kind of how we met and that's 15 years ago, Jean. A little, a little over. Wow. Yeah. So it just it just makes us sound old, you know. Um, but we've been it's, we've been seasoned. Sound... I prefer seasoned. Exactly. <laughs> it makes you sound seasoned. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So well, I love it. Yeah. Mostly Thank it's you. been mostly fun, fact. fun times, and it's been mostly shenanigans between us, I guess. And um, it was only two years. It's been two years, I think, when we first started talking about this project. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've became co-founders of this officially, I guess, beginning of last year. So it's been a little over, it, it's been about 18 months, I think. Right, Jan? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Wow. And I was going to say, fun fact, uh, both Liz and I were invited to become U.S. citizens in the same month. Yes. This really? This year. Wow. This year. So, yeah. yeah. Well, congratulations. That's yeah, awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. That is wonderful. <laughs> So we are so thankful to have you guys and I just want to extend my personal welcome and then want to launch us into the conversation about stereotypes. And we will be talking about the project that you guys are doing, but first want to just talk about the power that stereotypes have and ask you how stereotypes operate and what it's like to live under a stereotype. You know, that's a, it's a really complex question when you really start to dig into it, right? One of the things that I really try and preface all of the conversations that we have with, with is with the fact that um, I think we are a lot less racist than we think as a, as a people and a lot more prejudiced than we realize, right? And when you think about the word prejudice, from its Latin root is prejudice, right? It's to prejudge. And we're just, as human beings, wired to do that. If you had to make a, a conscious decision about every situation you were presented with every day, you wouldn't make it through your front door, right? And so as a function of that, we are wired to shortcut, put things in boxes, classify, and sort of move through the world as quickly as possible and as as efficiently as possible. And that's sort of where um, this grouping and classification comes in. And when you understand what a stereotype is, it's fundamentally um, the gross generalization of any group. Um, of people, a group of things. And I think sometimes you hear people say, oh, well, you know, there's some truth in that stereotype, right? Oftentimes what they're saying is, if you narrow the group down small enough, then the data will statistically be accurate. But when you start getting really broad with that group and painting people or things with a very broad brush and then defining them in your mind, and then by extension, putting them in that box of classification and moving through life. For us, that's when it gets dangerous because it is in those moments that you can potentially disenfranchise large groups of people because of a belief that you have to be true that may not necessarily be true. And so to your question of what it's like living under a stereotype, ironically, we all do, right? There is no, again, no monopoly on 
living under a stereotype. There are stereotypes about straight white men in the same way that there are straight stereotypes about black men or Asian women or whoever, whoever group that you want to look at. And so I think, you know, the answer to your question is we're all living under stereotypes and it, it sometimes it's okay because the stakes aren't that high. Right. Um, and then sometimes it's terrible because people can lose their lives. People can lose their livelihoods. People can become incarcerated. Um, as a function of somebody making a split second decision on data that isn't accurate um, because they just need to move quickly. Mm. So I've heard before the description that with stereotypes, oftentimes we will filter the data differently so that whenever we confront a specific situation where a person fits with a stereotype, we will attribute their actions or whatever is true to the stereotype. Well, it'll reinforce the stereotype. And we'll think like, oh, this is an example of that thing. Versus whenever we run into the counterproof of the stereotype, we will tend to attribute that not to the group, but to the individual. So it's like, oh, that individual mm-hmm. person is this other way. Versus the the confirming evidence mm-hmm. we'll, we'll put on the entire group. So with, with that in mind, uh, could you talk maybe a little bit about just the mechanics of stereotypes and how those negative stereotypes can affect not just, you referenced earlier how having a stereotype from the outside, being the person holding the stereotype, can can cause you to act unjustly towards a stereotyped group. But I want to maybe ask how, from being on the inside, somebody who is subject to a stereotype, how that stereotype can affect the psyche, the psychology, the well-being, the mental health of somebody who is lied about and is misportrayed throughout our culture. Mm. There's multiple parts to that, right? And so to your initial primer of, you know, confirmation bias, essentially, like we need things to not only be in boxes, but they need to be consistent. That's just sort of how we're wired. And so when things are consistent with our beliefs, we can double down on them, right? That's why you found over the last couple of years, echo chambers of, political discourse and journalism have become so successful because people are being, their, their beliefs are being reinforced. They feel more solidified in their position um, and they want to hear more of that good stuff. And if it, if it doesn't conform with that, then, you know, that doesn't feel good because now it's challenging my identity. One of the things that was really um, eye opening for me during the pandemic was how much people were digging their heels in based on their beliefs on, on the vaccines and after doing some reading, it was sort of what came out was this realization that people and their beliefs become inextricably linked. And as a result, you can't, people feel if you challenge their beliefs, you're challenging them. And it makes it harder for them to change their beliefs um, if they feel like they are being personally attacked and personally challenged, right? So there's a lot of psychology. Um, and just us trying to exist in the world as human beings that lead into a lot of these really, really dangerous things. I think living under the stereotype, though, it's it's tough. You know, there's this this connotation that, oh, well, there are positive stereotypes, right? There's Asian people who are good at math. That's a positive stereotype. But then you look at it through the lens of, well, what about Asian people who aren't good at math? 
right? Now you are no longer conforming to the group that you are supposed to be ethnically or racially identified with, right? And so anytime we put people in boxes and those people, for whatever reason, do not align very um, neatly with that box, there's a dissonance that takes place. And if the entire world is telling you you should be a certain thing or they're expecting you to be a certain thing and you know for yourself you're not that thing, then there's a lot of internal conflict and trauma and, and reconciliation that has to happen that doesn't often get reconciled for your entire life. Um, you know, somebody said we spend our entire lives um, resolving our issues from our childhood. Like that is what living is all about. Um, and, and I think that's, that's what we're trying to do with the stereotype project is that, yes, you may have these shortcuts, you may have these preconceived notions, but before you do or say anything that may impact another person, just take, take a moment to sort of determine whether or not you're moving forward with that stereotype in a way that can be dangerous. Um, but I think the, the last thing I would, would say is that we are so multifaceted. You can look at somebody and put them into a box, but there may be a hundred other interests or um, groups that they are members of that are not immediately obvious. And when you put somebody in a box like that and reduce them to this gross generalization, one of the groups that you've identified that they're a part of, you're taking away their complexity. You're taking away the nuance of their existence. Yeah. With the example that you gave of... uh Asians being good at math, the thought that hits me is that if there's an Asian man who is good at math and you just filter it through the stereotype, then you're not giving him credit for all the hard work that it took that he, as a human, put in just as much hard work as any other human would have to put in to be good at math. And it's like dismissive of the accomplishment. And then if he's not good at math, it's almost like, well, you had this advantage of being Asian and you're not good at math, when in reality, that advantage isn't there. It's just like a product of the stereotype. Hmm. Um, so it almost becomes a discredit to him. That's not fair because some people just have other interests that they pursue. Not like not everything requires math. And so either way, it can be harmful. And then when you take the harmful stereotypes, black men being violent and that being used as an excuse for just subjecting black men to, to violence and state control, then it becomes really harmful and painful. And we had some examples of stereotypes that I know you guys prepared. And I wanted to turn towards that and ask you guys, what are some of the specifically with this is Black History for White People, so specifically anti-African-American, anti-Black stereotypes. What are some examples of those? And maybe we could talk through also with that what some of the effects of those stereotypes are. So there are a few, and I think if we, if we look at it through sort of the historical context, you can start with, with slavery, right? And so out of slavery, there, there were two main ones that came out. Um, one is sort of the mandingo or the, the over-sexualization of the yes. black man, um, or just sort of the black brute, right? The, the yeah. aggressive, hyper-aggressive black man. And um, from the history of that, that was a function of, you know, the slavery and the auctions of black men. Um, and oftentimes they would use the body parts and the physicality of black men to justify the prices that they were charging. Um, when they were auctioning them off, right? And so mm. that was 
not even seen as a positive, but it was presented as something positive um, in an effort to sell. But then once they became under the control, it was used as a tool to as as a, a tool of fear, right? And so now the, the the black man has a black root and he's dangerous and you know protect your white wives and and all of the narrative that came around that and the the um, purity of your white wives as well as it was as it related to the over sexualization because that's all that's all these black roots want that's all these black roots are good for um, that sort of the origins but you see it pervasive pervasive today in mass media in terms of um, in movies and in, in TV shows around the narratives of the stock characters that writers and producers and directors will go to, to convey the story. Right. And I think, you know, that and, and many of the other stereotypes that you will come across, people fall into them. Black people as well. There was a study out of CUNY, New York, I believe that showed that black people, and I don't think this is unique to black people, but black people will, were more inclined to believe negative stereotypes about themselves than the people sort of imposing those stereotypes. And there's that internalization and that reconciliation that happens or an attempted reconciliation um, that occurs. And, and then you just see people sort of going to these stock characters or reinforcing those stereotypes in media, but not having no idea of, of the history and sort of where they came from as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of the example of how media over portrays black people as poor. And so there's a stereotype of black poverty. But then the result is that if you, because of that stereotype and that bias, if you like Google image search mm. for a poor person for a news story, it's mostly black people who are depicted yeah. because of the stereotype. Mm. And then it gets reinforced to where about there's about a 50% over portrayal in media of black people as poor. So they are overrepresented in the images that are shown. But then it's harmful both to black people because the stereotype can be used to be biased against black people in a variety of employment situations or just there's negative sides in politics to that stereotype. But then it's also harmful to white poor who basically get ignored as being the reality of white poverty is oftentimes just completely overlooked. And so it's harmful to both groups. But I, I wonder if you could maybe talk through some of the other ones. What are some of the other stereotypes? You know, you were talking about um, the portrayal in media. I think one of the things that's really interesting with that is how susceptible everybody is to that. Like even, even if you are part of the group that's, um, who feel that you may be unaffected by those portrayals. So for example, black men being violent and criminals and, um, you know, more likely to be incarcerated and all of those things, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Once, so the origin of, of that was from the transition from, and the abolition of slavery into what effectively became a police state, right? Um, And so, to justify, you know, the lynchings and the and the arrests or the over arrests and um, the brutality that existed shortly after slavery, because they couldn't do that under the, the law of slavery anymore, um, that just transitioned to sort of a police 
state. And so in an effort to justify all of that behavior, you would start seeing these portrayals, be it in whatever the media was at the time, um, print journalism or what have you, or in um, posters and propaganda, that all of these things were justified because the African-American man was more criminal, was more aggressive, was more likely to commit crimes, right? You fast forward that, or you continue that, I should say, over the decades, and now it's a commonplace stereotype, a commonplace trope in movies and TV shows, and particularly the news, right? And so there's an over-indexing of portrayal of Black people as criminals in the news. Media Matters for America did a couple of studies on this and showed that there were particular stations that would over-index, but all of them would, right? Some more than others. But what was really interesting for me from that was the fact that the police watch the news too, right? And mm -hmm. so they are now being um, susceptible to this belief and this narrative. And so that now um, defines their behavior, not because every single police officer is a racist and wants to just go around brutalizing black people, but if that is what they are being bombarded with continually, not only are citizens susceptible to this belief and, and, and perpetuating that stereotype, but the very people who are supposed to be a little bit more objective in how they carry out their job, they're human beings as well, and they are going to be susceptible to the propaganda. So you see some black people um, minding their own business, but you have in your mind that black people are more likely to commit crime, then you're now more likely to want to go and stop and search and, and do things that constitutionally you probably shouldn't be doing. But because of your conditioning as a function of media, you find yourself more inclined to do it. can't explain mm. why. So it feels like a lot of stereotypes are created as tools of, of oppression. So when we think about the welfare queens, you know, the stereotype of black women not being good mothers, which... Hmm. Black, well, you know, the truth being that black women were prevented from being mothers mm -hmm. because they were enslaved. So, you know, or, or black babies would go malnourished because black women would have to nurse white children over their own or black women had to work to survive. So they weren't be able to be, you know, homemakers in the conventional sense. Like, you know, many black women were forced to work and so much so that a black woman homemaker is frowned upon because you associate blackness and black women as you know if you're you're or, or black just black people in general if they're not working in the traditional sense of working for someone and working a nine to five just to stay alive then they have no value it's like how are you not working you you basically created to work and so and so I believe some stereotypes are born from just stereotypes of, of, you know, just reducing people, but then some are created as tools of oppression. Mm. Absolutely. So that was actually the genesis of the stereotype project. So I was in Philly, I was consulting, and it was a 2015 general election, leading up to the 2015 general election, mm. and mm. Trump's meteoric rise. And I'm watching this happen, and I'm, like, getting really frustrated because I'm like, how... How did we get here? The country is literally fracturing in real time and you're watching people talk past each other, not just on in political discourse, but in communities, right? And um, 
you know, anytime I find myself in a situation that I personally don't like, I'm like, how did you get here? What did you personally do to contribute to the situation that you're in? And I kind of turned that question to the country. And I was like, how did we get here? And so that sent me on this odyssey of research, Google Scholar, and reading a bunch of books. And um, I think one of the things that really popped out to me was that this notion of propaganda, this deliberate um, propaganda, mass media by whoever is in socioeconomic power at the time, using it to create very specific narratives about groups of people. And then most of the country who doesn't have the opportunity to interact with people who don't look like them, using that as their default narrative of who those people are, right? And so as a black man in America, it was very um, visceral and evident because, you know, I, people see me and then I open my mouth and then I tell them I'm from Trinidad and I tell them where I've lived and, now, and then it, you see them doing mental acrobatics while they're talking to me. And it goes from, you know, general suspicion to, oh my goodness, my nanny was from Trinidad and Tobago when I was growing up and, you know, all of this very positive affinity towards the Caribbean. Um, but that's not unique to African-Americans. You look at the lavender scare, you look at the narratives around Asian-Americans at the turn of the century and, and the internment camps and all of that propaganda. It's been very, very deliberate. Um, I don't want to say in most cases, because we're still doing the work to find out all of the stereotypes, but um, that was the beginning. It was this realization that, oh, this is intentional. This is deliberate and it's being de- disseminated by a Media. Yeah, I remember a specific moment in around that time period where they the Trump administration started posting mm. a list, a running list of crimes that immigrants would commit. <laughs> and it reminded me that the German government or Hitler directly during like the Holocaust period had a list that they would uh, update of any crimes that Jewish people would commit. Because the reality is Everyone, every type of person commits crime in a society. But if you start just only showing when one category of person commits a crime, then it becomes this like whole running list. And it started to shape animosity towards Jewish people. Uh, and, you know, there was already some there, but it like furthered the animosity towards Jewish people in a way that helped to excuse or make people look the other way as Jewish people were rounded up, were put into the ghettos, and then were um, ultimately killed through the Holocaust. And how the power that that has to turn a society on to a stereotype, and then seeing that being done with immigrants, when I know from having researched it that immigrant communities actually commit crimes at lower rates hmm. than native-born Americans, but they are more likely to have crimes committed against them than native-born citizens because criminals know they can't go to the police mm-hmm. without, so, without fear of deportation. Speaking of Asian hate, yes. and, and speaking of the election, you know, just labeling the COVID virus as the China virus and specifically Asian women being attacked. I, 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 saw, I made myself watch a video of an Asian woman being just physically assaulted and just Asian friends and just seeing this footage of people being afraid for their their lives because this man has weaponized a virus against an an entire group of people. Liz, can you speak to that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly insidious and powerful, right? And yeah. I don't know, you know, if we're being on, we don't know what he was thinking and what his intention was, but we know that it wasn't coming from a good place, right? And I don't, right. and I actually don't know if he truly understood the impact of his words and his actions and how widespread and how powerful, you know, of like almost like, you know, um, weaponizing in some ways, people in that way towards very, very specific targets. And yeah. and it's an incredibly scary to think that, you know, I've been in this country now for like 30 plus years, right? And to think that, wow, like, I personally have never experienced racism, not to my face to, to the point where it was so scarring and so damaging. But I do have friends who lived in various parts of this country who've experienced hate growing up, like in the 80s and the 90s and whatnot. But we connected around Asian hate, you know, when all that violence was happening around the country and we couldn't believe it, right? That like, wow, 30 years, mm -hmm. 40 years of being in this country, like it felt like we were moving backwards in time but also because of how information spreads now versus how information spread back in the 70s and 80s, it felt like it was exponential. The information that was being spread and the hate that was being spread was incredibly more powerful and potentous and insidious in some ways. And um, mm -hmm. as an Asian woman who don't usually think about my race that often, to be honest, you know, because I live in a fairly mm -hmm. safe area and I think I have, you know, enough, you know, street smartness to do what I need to do survive, right? Even I was scared. And I think that speaks volume as somebody who lives very close to New York and being in New York all the time, like, um, it was a very scary time. And I don't know even if today, if that's completely gone away, because we are surrounded by people all the time who are emotionally, mentally may not be stable. And those kind of hatred and those words may still be lingering within them. And now they might have, they may completely be rewired in the way they view Asian people, generally speaking. And I'm not going to be able to discern if the person, you know, that I'm sitting next to on a bus or in a subway or walking towards me on a street, what their state of mind is and how they would perceive me, perceive me because of the color of my skin and because of the way I look. And, you know, the fear is real. Fear is scary. And some of us live with it more regularly than others, but it is incredibly powerful tool. So then... Let's turn the conversation here to what do we do about it? Like, how do we, once these stereotypes are so deeply seated in us and in ways that we don't even necessarily know mm -hmm. or we're not even aware of, how do we begin to uproot some of the stereotypes? I mean, that was part of, I think, you know, Gian's kind of thesis. So when he wrote this paper and he shared the white paper with me, his thesis was basically, hey, what got us here is exactly what's going to get us out right? Um, mm. Creating more balanced perspective about all the groups of people that are out there and creating narrative that's actually factual and not based on any kind of pop propaganda, right? And being able to distill what's fact and what's fiction and what the intent was, hopefully is going to, un you know, create more balance in the way we see each other. And you know, part of the kind of the initiatives that we have in place, hopefully, and because like we were talking about how quickly information spread, 
when we when Jean and I had a conversation about this project back in 2020, we're like, are we laying tracks for a train that we may not get to get to ride, right? Because if it took 400 years for us to get to this point of us kind of having these perceptions about each other, is it going to take another 400 years for us to undo the work? And that was our belief, I think, when we had initially started the project, but we ended up talking to people who are way more smarter than we are and told us, you know, actually, you know, how communication happens, how quickly we change behavior and how quickly information gets spread today versus even five, 10 years ago, we may actually be able to modify the behavior and communication and language in the way we talk to each other and be able to better distill our intent in the language. And if we're able to do that quickly enough, the impact of the work that we are trying to achieve, we may be able to see in our lifetime. It was the hopeful message that we wow. keep hearing from people who are way smarter than us. So we hope that they're right. And, you know, we are also, that's part of the reason why we're kind of in this kind of urgent kind of mandate to do this sooner than later. And we're kind of hustling and rushing to get this off the ground as soon as possible as well, because we know that today's already a little too late, right? And so um, that's kind of where we are with the project. So so please tell us about the project yes. and what it is that you hope it will be. Sure. Um, so, so the Stereotype Project um, is a multifaceted initiative with the whole goal to understand people and cultures and the stereotypes that are, or the, the gross generalizations that may be used to describe those cultures and highlight gaps, particularly in mass media or media in general. And so in an effort to do that, we have a number of tools. The first thing is the stereotype database, which is intended to be the the largest um, database of stereotypes across every group, in every culture, in every country in the world. Um, And not just, hey, here's a group and here's a stereotype, but we really want to contextualize that information. So for every stereotype, we want to know who started it, when they started it, why did they start it, how did they introduce it into the public discourse, how has that been perpetuated over time, all of the examples that exist in media, and the implications of the introduction of that stereotype over time. Right. So with that, the, the database is going to be temporal as well. The perspectives and the attitudes of a group of people back in the 60s may have evolved to something very different or something lesser um, than it is today. And so we want to track all of that. And once you have that database, then some really exciting things can be done. The first thing that we want to build is called the Stereotype Buster app. It's a terrible name. And I'm going to get a better it. name. But <laughs> the, the, whole, the whole idea behind the Stereotype Buster app is you subscribe to the groups that you care about or that are relevant to you. Right. And then you also connect all of your social media accounts. And every day we will surface a myth busting factoid or a headline or a statistic or a detail. And then you can quickly and easily disseminate that to your sphere of influence. The whole idea behind it was in an effort to sort of capture the power of collectivism. Not everybody's going to get out on the street and march, but people do have a propensity of tweeting and reposting and saying things on social media. And so in an effort to harness that power and your spheres of influence, we want to make it super easy for you to share information in the groups and the arenas that you care about. 
um, and impact those people. And so once you've seen that headline or post, it can link you back to the database and people can go and learn and research for themselves and learn about the history of the terms of phrase or the expressions or the words that they use that they may not really know where that truly came from. Second thing that we want to do um, is empower the advocates, right? So we truly believe that nobody can advocate for you better than you can advocate for yourself. But you don't always have the talking points. You don't always have the data points. And oftentimes the people who do have nefarious intentions have all of their data points to shut you down when you're just trying to get through your day, right? But because the Stereotype Project is not an advocacy organization, we're a platform and a resource, we want to partner with all of the organizations that are doing this incredible work already, from GLAD to Gina Davis, Center for Women in Media, to Media Matters for America, Jewish Anti-Defamation League, the list goes on. But the challenge is not all of these groups have the same level of endowment, right? Some organizations have hundreds of millions of dollars. Some organizations have thousands of dollars, right? And so how do we level the playing field? And with the database, our intention is to do all of the research for them. Instead of them having to take the limited funds that they have to do research, then write a report, then focus on advocacy. With the tools that we're building from the database, you can generate a report very, very quickly and use the resources that you have, be it Tremendous amount of resources are limited to focus primarily on your advocacy work because the information is there for you. And with that, there's another exciting component of intersectionality. So for all of those organizations that I talked about, they all have a very specific mandate and it's often very siloed. And every now and again, you'll see groups getting together and doing an initiative that spans maybe multiple groups. But not all of the time are you going to have the time or the resources to go in-depth and find research and do analysis and generate reports that covers multiple areas. Well, with the database, that becomes incredibly simple because it's an and query, right? You can say women and Muslims and LGBTQIA and disability. And we will be able to surface very quickly and easily all of the representation and all of the stereotypes that cover those groups and allow people to advocate. And that might be a small subset of the population. It might be 4,000 women, right? But at least those 4,000 women can see, feel seen and validated and heard um, and have the resources to, to empower themselves. So the last initiative that we have is something called the Stereotype Perpetuation Index Score. Um, are you familiar with Grammarly at all? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we want to build effectively a, a Grammarly, but for stereotypes. And so wow. before you hit print, publish, tweet, send, whatever have you, you have the ability to have everything that you have written um, annotated and analyzed using the database um, and essentially highlight any language that could be problematic. And so it would link you back to the database to tell you the history or the origin of that word or turn of phrase or expression, explain to you why it's problematic, provide you alternative language so that we're not leaving you high and dry. Like, this is a problem, fix it. Um, we're actually going to give you some alternative language to use. But we're not trying to control anybody's freedom of speech, right? So at the end of that, you can still do what you want, but we want to eliminate people's ability to say, oh, I didn't know, right? Anytime people put things out there and then they're on the verge of getting canceled, their first defense is usually, oh, I didn't know, right? And so we're trying to make sure that people are aware of what they're saying so that they can align their impact with their intention. Um, and there are going to be people who are going to be bad actors. They want to be offensive. They want to say terrible things, either deliberately or maybe they're a comedian and they're leaning into satire and all of these various tropes. But the more we can 
empower people and inform people and allow them to really align their, again, their intentions and impact and so that we can have some positive change in the world. I cannot imagine how much effort, how much work, <laughs> the thoughtfulness, the mindfulness, like the, uh, this is really powerful. Like, so you guys just, one of you walked into the other's office one day and said, hey, let's make this, <laughs> all this. Like, how did that, how did y'all get started I mean, with it's, this? It's, yeah. what, what was the, what was the first, what sparked this? I mean, talk about timing, right? So it's like, like everything else in life, like everything, like things have to align for, I think, for it to start and for it to have the momentum that's needed. So I was personally going through an existential crisis um, in beginning of 2020 for a lot of different reasons mm. and ended up reading a book written by a Korean American woman called Minor Feelings. And she was a poet. And she, so it's a beautiful collection of her essays and really, really eloquent and articulate. But the crux of the book, she kind of challenges Asian Americans by saying, like, are we junior partners of people of white, powerful, wealthy, authoritative figures and allowing them to move forward their agenda, fattening their bank accounts? At the same time, are we being utilized as a resource to oppress other groups on their behalf? And it really hit me Mm -hmm. like a truck. So I was processing all of this and then George Floyd happened. And then Gian came and said, the white paper that I wrote, (laughs) I think now is the time for us to do something about this. Do you want to come on board to get this off the ground? And Gian could probably go more in details about how the project evolved over time. But we just kind of start talking to everybody. Um, We kind of reached out to people we knew and connected with people that we got introduced to. And uh, project has evolved. The core core objective of the mission of the project hasn't changed, but there are kind of aspects of the project that's grown and scaled in different ways that we hadn't anticipated. And that's because we are talking to people who are way smarter than us. So we talk about this and then they go in hundred different directions and apply this in hundred different ways. And it's really challenging us to think about this project in a much bigger scale and a much bigger scope than we had first anticipated, which is kind of exciting. And it's scary for me. It's exciting for Gian. And this is why it works because we're different, you know, um, but it's, um, it's been a journey, you know, and we've, we've actually been in situations. So the database and all the data collection that will happen will sit in nonprofit. So we are not doing the research, but we will be working with academic institutions, people who are way better at the research themselves to provide the information for us. And we will be just gathering and aggregating this information, creating the infrastructure around it. And what he's talking about, the spell check for stereotype, that would be on the for-profit technology aspect of it. And we needed yeah. to make that clear distinction because in the early on, we would have conversations with fairly big corporations and they would say, hey, why don't you guys come in-house? We would give you the, all the capital and the resource to actually build this out. And, you know, we want to basically own this. Like, we will buy you guys out. And we haven't even done anything at that point. And we had to mm-hmm. make a decision and say, actually, that can't work because the data and what is going to be included in the data and the impact of the data can't be driven by the bottom line, meaning we can't only mm-hmm. include data that's going to monetize in the best way possible. Right. It can't be driven by that. Mm -hmm. It can't be driven by financial gains for somebody. So if that's the Mm -hmm. case, then that would really skew the type of data we would include and not include. 
And, and never mind, if we go under any one company, there's a conflict of interest, you know, with any of their competitors or any of their clients or their clients' competitors. And we want this to be kind of, we want this program and this, you know, mission and goal to be used and utilized by everybody and anybody. And if that's the case, like singular kind of exclusive association, we really hinder the mission and the objective of the foundation. So we had to say, no, like as tempting as it is, right? Like, like it's really hard to say like no to people who are going to throw money at you to do the work that you want to do. But, you know, June and I had to make that decision fairly early on to say, okay, this data would sit in nonprofit and we'll protect it at all costs to make sure that we are intending to use this and utilize this tools and resources in the way we think that it should be used. And we're hoping that the for-profit, the technology software that we would license out and hopefully it would be like an enterprise kind of plug into any operating system or any kind of software or programs or social media platforms that you may have, that that will generate enough revenue to eventually support the nonprofit so that we're not relying on external donation to keep that foundation and the data collection up and running. Because stereotype evolves, right? Like st stereotypes changes over time. So this is a never, this is a never ending project. It will never be fully completed ever because um, we're changing, language changes, culture changes, you know, think about like somebody, white woman with name Karen, you know, and how that stereotype didn't exist five, 10 years ago, right? In our culture, but now mm -hmm. any white woman with the name Karen, like it's an incredibly, you know, it's, it's a stigma. And so the question becomes like, what else are we not aware of at this moment that will evolve or that would, you know, be created or generated by whoever? And we need to be able to capture that at some point. So it's a massive project mm -hmm. and it will never end. And hopefully this is something that Jian and I could pass on to generations ahead and we're creating a better future for all of us. Well, wow. it is an incredible ambition and I think it is easy to see how it will make a better future. It's more a question of how how much you can scale it and how quickly it can start making a difference. We are so excited about just hearing what's yes. happening and about following you. We're going to ask in a minute how we can follow you and kind of subscribe to get more information as you guys launch some of these programs. But wanted to first invite you to just before we get there to speak directly to the audience member, not to us here, but directly to the audience member, what they could take away, maybe just like a challenge to them or some like a send off to the audience member. Speak from your heart. What would you want them to carry away from this conversation? Jian? <laughs> it sounds like a tough um, question. It sounds like an incredibly tough question. So I'll pass it on to Jian. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the takeaway that I would want listeners to, to, to take with them is to realize that this is universal. Um, stereotypes are truly universal and they are so insidious that you may be harboring stereotypes that you aren't even aware that you are. You, you've sort of planted it into your brain as fact. And so anytime you find yourself making an assumption or jumping to a conclusion that in your mind is fact, um, take a minute to just interrogate where did you get that belief from um, and how true is it actually? And I think if we can get enough people to just slow down before they start making 
very significant decisions that can have um, very, very detrimental impact to other groups of people. Just by taking that minute, you can completely change the trajectory of the situation. Wow. So how can we get behind you guys? How can we, what can we point our listeners to in support of the Stereotype Project? Yeah, I think there are probably a couple of ways to do that. So one, we are looking for uh, corporate partners and Giving Tuesday. So we know that that's kind of right around the corner and we are in full fundraising mode. And um, if there are corporations who are either have internal newsletters that get distributed or there's matching programs where they need people to come and speak about a cause that they want to support, we are here and available to be able to do that. And so Giving Tuesday is November 29th. And we know that a lot of people are kind of planning already for that, which is scary because that means holidays around the corner. Um, so Giving Tuesday is one option. And people could directly donate on our website, thestereotypeproject.org. There's a donate button. So if you want to do that, you could do that. Um, any kind of, we're also consulting with corporations as well. We did a small project with Apple back in April, which we cannot go into details about because my cats would be, I'm sure, dead. You know, if we talk about it in detail (laughs) or somebody said, maybe your phones would explode. Yes, that could also be the case. We don't know, you know, Um, but so we are also partnering with um, a Jewish um, nonprofit organization called Shine a Light. And it's around anti-Semitism. And we have a campaign activation that's happening um, in beginning of December. And so we always like say, when you layer in the lens and perspective of stereotype, it broadens the audience. So if you're talking about Asian women, like activation or campaign, usually only Asian women care about that topic. But if you talk about stereotypes around Asian women, are you the type of person who stereotypes Asian women? Then it actually, the conversation becomes about everybody else. So we are partnering, uh, we're finding consulting opportunities as well. So they could reach out to me directly at liz.kim at the stereotypeproject.org. Do you guys have like a mailing list there that we could sign up for to get updates? Yes, we do. We will by the time this episode yes. airs. We, we will add a button. We will add a button by the time this airs. Yes. Add the button. Yes. Very good. I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. This was just a thought provoking conversation. And I mean, of all the things that people feel impassioned to do with their time when it comes to justice and advocacy work. I, I would have never thought to start an organization like that is crazy. Yeah. But it just goes to say that it goes to show that there's so many ways that we can do this work and still leave a ton of work undone on the table. And the fact that you guys are already thinking about leaving the stereotype project as a le- as a legacy, I mean, and and that you've created this collective to um, be a part of this project and you've made it like communal, it's powerful, man, it is powerful. And so I'm so grateful to have met you both and I'll be following the both of you and just watching and supporting and seeing how this takes off. I'm excited for you guys. Thank you so much for the work that you've committed yourselves to. 